This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. You're listening to The Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Tom Allenson. I'm sitting in the chair for Nina Copel this week. Coming up on the show, Fairfax issues the biggest retraction we've probably seen this year over an Anzac story. Plus, the ABC is starting a new BuzzFeed-style project after it axed 20 news positions. Are Russian Twitter bots influencing Australian politics? And that Michelle Wolf comedy roast. Was it more than just a storm in a teacup? Well, that and more coming up on the show. Joining me in the studio from Junkie is Sam Langford, uh, Alex McKinnon from the Saturday Paper. Hiya. And on the line is independent journalist Claire Connolly. Claire, where are you calling us from? From the southern highlands of New South Wales. Beautiful. Is it cold? It is. It's wonderful. Let's get into the topic. So just yesterday, the ABC revealed it's working on a new storytelling project. That's, it's been described as an attempt to buzzfeed eyes the national broadcaster. Does that make sense? Well, Osman Faruqi, um, the former editor at the pop culture and news website Junkie, is reportedly joining the team. He'll be deputy editor of what they're calling a lifestyle vertical for ABC Online. Uh, and that comes, of course, after the ABC announced about 20 redundancies across Metro newsrooms earlier this week. First off, I just wanted to ask the panel um, what a lifestyle vertical is. Does anybody know? Uh, well, I think I work for one, so that's probably a good indicator. I think that from what I understand, I don't know heaps about this project, it sounds like they just want to appeal a bit more to young people and by lifestyle I take that to mean lots of stuff that just doesn't encompass breaking news so that could really span anything I don't know what they have in mind mm. but certainly that could be features on anything from stuff you do in your home to hobbies and interests or just interesting things for young people that aren't like hard-hitting news content any idea vertical how does how does that become a vertical then Alex I've been trying to come up with a funny kind of analogy for a lifestyle vertical for the last 20 seconds, and I have completely failed. Um, I I guess first, congratulations to Osman, or Oskin, as he was uh, named in a press release by uh, Senator Eric Betts. Um, apparently, he's a purveyor of fake news, um, and as a fellow purveyor of fake news who used to work in uh, Oskin's role, 
Um, dust for Daniel Comrade. Uh, happy May Day. The revolution is one step closer. We are well on our way to complete world infiltration. Good work. <laughs> I second that, and it's probably worth noting that you used to work in Oz's role, and Oz used to be my boss. We sat next to each other for a good year, so I also know him quite well. The media is incredibly incestuous. <laughs> um, perhaps, Claire, you could, you could answer this one. I, I know the details about this show are pretty slim right now, um, but what, what do you make of this? Is, is there room for something like this in the media market? Um, I mean, I'm sure there's always room for another lifestyle vertical. I mean, I think Osman's an incredible journalist, so it should not be um, seen as a reflection of his ability or talents, of course. But um, I suppose in the back rooms of various newsrooms, lifestyle has always kind of been a little bit of a pejorative term um, for, for when you want to pivot from a breaking news or um, context journalism uh, approach to creating more clickable, shareable content. Um, and, and, and it's kind of like a polite way of saying, you know, we, we want hard-hitting content that doesn't offend anyone. And my concern with the ABC is that, I mean, it had a pretty great, uh, if you can call it a lifestyle vertical, although I, I would probably put it under a, a different uh, column, which is probably more contextual opinion. But the drum was that for a long time, and that was defunded a number of years ago. And I think it did a really excellent job of helping people to understand uh, more broadly the, the context and issues of the things they were reading about and watching on the breaking news channel. Um, so, you know, particularly after 20 journalists have been sacked and we've heard directives from Michelle Guthrie about creating more business-friendly content and creating content that it seems to be more bipartisan, although I don't really know where the news should be partisan in any particular way, you know, and, and claiming to kind of sit down the middle is not what journalism's role is meant to do. So, you know, my concern with the creation of this vertical is it's a way to kind of water down the, the uh, impact of the news that the ABC has for very a long time um, had a proud history of breaking and creating. Mm. Do, do, do you think, does anybody here see this as, as an attempt to reach out to those younger audiences that perhaps they lost when uh, the drum was defunded, partially defunded? Um, I don't know whether the drum ever kind of reached a young audience. They're definitely mm. trying to reach younger people, um, which is kind of evidenced by the fact that they've hired Osman. Um, it is a little bit kind of worrying. Like, good luck to him. I'm, I'm sure it'll be great. Um, but the ABC is sort of... Uh, it's trusted to break, you know, really hard-hitting news and do long investigative reporting. It's uh, by some way the most trusted um, media outlet in the country. It's one of the most trusted institutions in the country, full stop. Um, and that's what sets it apart then in its regional reporting. Um, hopefully, Oz can bring, uh, you know, the ABC's ethos to this sort of reporting. Hopefully, they do it a little bit smarter and more substantive than everybody else. Um, that would probably be the best outcome, I guess. Mm. What, what do you think, Sam? You, I mean, you work for Junkie. Is this almost a, a crowding out with this with this producer crowding out in the media market? I guess it's hard to know until we see the kind of content that they produce. Mm. Um, I think if they're doing good original content and like some of the stuff that like the best stuff that Junkie has published over the years, then I think it's not so much crowding out as just introducing 
more voices and the more trusted ABC voice on this kind of thing. I know that a lot of the kind of content that we've had classed as lifestyle has involved, like, really delving into the race politics of particular TV shows and stuff like that and doing stuff that I think you can consider to be hard-hitting even if it's not news. And I think if Osmond brings that kind of work to this, then I think it's something useful the ABC can contribute. It's great to have a trusted voice backing that kind of narrative. Mm. Mm. Um, the Australian first reported this story, I think it was the, uh, just uh, yesterday, um, but the Australian's report backgrounded Osman Faruqi's and his mother's politics and his defamation suit with Mark Latham. Is this genuinely relevant information to give us more of an idea about what this new vertical is, or should we be judging the ABC's hiring practices based on this information? What do you think, Alex? Um, I reckon we're going to... I think uh, we're going to have an entire Senate inquiry into it, just based on, um, you know, the Erica Betzes of the world and their outrage about uh, people with politics whom they disagree with working for the ABC. I can imagine Oz's name is going to come up uh, at some Senate estimates hearings for the next maybe couple of years. Um, no one is without political opinions. The The real crux of it comes when... You know, when an institution like the ABC hires them, whether they can leave their politics at the door. Um, Osmond's a, a pretty outspoken guy, um, and now he's bound by the ABC charter to rein uh, some of his opinions in. Um, Chris Yulman, you know, the ABC political editor for a long time, he ran for uh, ACT Parliament in 1998 on a kind of pro-life, anti-abortion ticket. Uh, that didn't really kind of crop up anywhere when he became ABC's you know, a senior ABC political editor. I don't, if it doesn't affect his career, I don't see why it should affect Osmond's. Mm. Mm. Claire, what do you think? I think it's important right now that these um, instances of politicians telling the ABC who they should hire and fire demonstrates how important it is to enshrine in law the ABC's independence. Because, yes, the ABC is government-funded, but that does not mean that it should be a government mouthpiece, nor should that be the case for any public broadcaster. And unlike the BBC, which, you know, arguably might have its problems, it nonetheless has a legal case to make because its independence is enshrined. And it worries me that any journalist, whether that's Chris Yulman or Osman Faraki, should be the subject of Senate hearings for years to come. That's not the role of the government to play. And in a democratic country, it is not the role of the government to decide what is and is not newsworthy. And it is not the role of the government to decide who should and should not be given the privilege of delivering that news. So mm. I think it's really important that within these conversations, we talk about what it means to what it means for the ABC to exist and what it means to work at the ABC. And, you know, it, it even worries me that the ABC's charter requires people to rein in their political views because when you look at the parameters of the kinds of discussions that you see on the ABC on shows like Q&A, those parameters are very, very narrow. And often they don't provide um, audiences and, and readers of the, of the various think pieces that follow adequate context to make a, a proper decision about where they stand on any given issue. And I think it's important to have a range of voices with a range of different political opinions and at, at any publication, regardless of what that funding, where that funding comes from. Um, so I would like, you know, within this discussion and, you know, 
within discussions in the future. I mean, the the issue with Emma Alberici recently and a piece over uh, company tax is another example of that. I think it's really important that these kind of issues be included within these debates. Mm. Sam, what do you think? I mean, uh, like Emma Alberici was... Uh she was factually incorrect, in, and she was found to be factually incorrect in, in, in the articles that she was pulled up in front of Senate estimates for. Do you think it is possible that Osman Faruqi will be pulled up in front of Senate estimates um, in the near future? As far as independence, I think absolutely they should have it. I think it's worrying that politicians, especially because they're some of the people the ABC needs to report on and report on aggressively, are having a say in whose opinions they do and don't like in that sphere. I think that's quite dangerous. As to whether Oz will be pulled up before the Senate, I don't really know. But I, I guess I would like to say, and obviously I come from a bit of a place of bias as someone who knows and gets on with Oz, but I think that articles like the one in The Australian do him a bit of a disservice when they pull up every controversial thing he's ever done whenever he makes the news and make a list of that. Because it doesn't, like accurately reflect what it's like to work with him. And given that he works in journalism and all that his work is publicly available under his byline on the website, all they would need to do is go and have a look at what he's done recently. I think they kind of sidestep and choose to ignore all the really good, thoughtful, considered work that he's done, the people he's worked with who have found that to be a positive experience. And instead they say once or twice he tweeted something angry or in some cases that they've interpreted as angry. There was a line in the Australian piece saying that he retweeted and endorsed some tweet when actually his retweet was clearly criticising it. Like, in some cases, I think they're cherry-picking some of the more controversial things, which definitely exist, but it's mm. not the whole experience of working with him. Mm. Yeah. Um, completely agree. In my experience, Oz is a teddy bear. Um, he can be a bit of a loose unit on Twitter, but Twitter is sort of designed for people to be a loose unit. If everyone was judged by what they did on Twitter, which is inevitably like the worst parts of their personality, myself included. <laughs> None of us would ever work ever again. Can well, I just jump in to go back to the MRL Barici thing real quick? Sure. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to sort of hanker on this, but what Emma Alberici wrote was not actually factually incorrect. I think the issue was, uh, well, at least from the ABC's perspective, was that it too uh, closely resembled opinion. And I think that's a fair critique. But it's really important to mention that the what the government claims to be correct or more factual was itself incorrect as well. And I, I, I don't I admire Emma Alberici hugely, as I do many journalists in this industry. Um, so I don't want to do her a, a disservice. But I, I think there is a broader problem here, which is that the way in which we talk about the economy is deeply flawed and often in some particular instances, deliberately misleading. And it concerns me that when someone like Scott Morrison or Malcolm Turnbull calls up the ABC and claims to know more about the economy than their own economics correspondent, that there aren't adequate resources within the ABC to be able to assess the merit of that claim. And I think it was unfair that Emma came under so much criticism for her work because actually there have been at least three or four studies, one from one of the most conservative think tanks in the world that actually argues for the case of abolishing company tax in the place of having all income or all profits 
made by corporations taxed as income. And the people who are the recipients of the dividends of those profits should also declare that money as income, and it should be a progressive taxation system. So, you know, it's funny that something that Emma Alberici wrote, that companies that don't pay tax, it makes very little sense to have... To, to cut company taxes when they're not paying any anyway. And that actually adheres to the claims of some of Australia and the world's most conservative and uh, fiscally conservative think tanks and organisations. Um, and, and so it is for this very reason that the ABC must enshrine independence legally within its charter. Because I don't, I think Emma copped unfairly a huge amount of flax for something that wasn't actually factually inaccurate in the first place. Mm, mm. Look, we, we, we may be straying a little bit. We will probably have to return to this subject again when we know a little bit more about what the show will actually be or the vertical, the lifestyle vertical. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're listening to Fourth Estate. I'm Tom Allenson. Both Nina Copel and Peter Frey are away this week. But tonight I'm speaking to Sam Langford from Junkie, uh, Alex McKinnon of the Saturday Paper, and on the line is independent journal Claire Connolly. You can check her stuff out on Patreon and at renegadeinc.com. Well, uh, this week we saw possibly one of the biggest retractions and apologies this year. Um, on Saturday, Fairfax published a 300-word mea culpa over an error-ridden historical account of the Battle of villers bretonneux a um, hundred years ago on Anzac Day. The main offence seemed to be where the story described Sir John Monash giving a rousing speech to troops by referencing the painful memories of Gallipoli, but Monash couldn't have given it because he wasn't there. The piece was written by the popular Anzac historian Dr Jonathan King, and as far as I know, Fairfax won't say whether it was fact-checked. The ABC ran a radio piece including the same error unchecked and... Malcolm Turnbull also made a similar mistake last week. Mm, actually, in France, at the site, opening a museum um, oh. named after John Monash, which right. was embarrassing for him. And he was pulled up fairly quickly on that, wasn't he? I think he was, mm. but it's possible that the bulk of the criticism came out today once people realised that, yeah, that the report was wrong. Right, yeah. Well, first of all, before we get to that, I just wanted to throw this out to everybody. Uh has anybody here had to uh, issue a retraction or an apology? How, how, does, how does that feel? I think I have. I can't uh, remember anything specific. But, yeah, it's part of the job. Nothing like this. Nothing that kind of imagined, I think, an entire battle and the people who ran it and fought it. Um, but, yeah, you know, everyone gets stuff wrong. Uh, but that's why you need fact-checkers. And if Fairfax are refusing to say that the story was fact-checked, that probably means that it wasn't fact-checked. Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, is that is that the problem here, that, that, that such limited resources means that something as possibly sensitive as a Anzac history on Anzac Day or in the days leading up to it comes out uh, garbled? Um, Claire, you, I know you work as an independent journalist. You, don't, you possibly don't have the resources to employ a fact-checker or a copy editor. Do you think this comes down to, to, to bad fact-checking? I mean, in, on the one hand, yes, yes, absolutely it does. And all news organisations should be employing fact-checkers as well as sub-editors because sometimes, you know, a, a comma or an apostrophe can change the meaning of an entire sentence. But if that entire sentence is wrong and there's no one there to pick it up, 
you know, that's even even more of a of a problem. Um, as you said, I, I am independent and um, I do fact check all of my work because um, I kind of personally feel as though the stakes are a little higher because I have all that much more to lose. Um, so I, I mean, but also the kind of work that I do is quite research based. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's really important to say there are some things that can't be fact checked and there are some things that you would have to make a judgment call on, um, you know, sending a source an entire story and then, you know, accepting a, a red pen edit is not good journalism. But it also depends on the kind of journalism that you're doing. I work with a range of historians and political researchers and economists, and at least with regards to how I'm quoting them and any um, work that they have been involved in, I will send them my work for fact check ahead of time because I live in constant fear of post-publication corrections. Because it, I mean, we've all had we've all had them to some degree. I mean, I'm sure. You know, like Alex is saying, nothing on this level, but it still feels really terrible when that happens. And the goal is to have a watertight story ahead of time. Um, I'm also not dealing with the same kind of uh, deadlines and uh, I, I'm not kind of, I don't have to deal with the, the continual cycle of the, of the 24 hour news cycle. So I understand that it, it might be a slightly different situation. Um, but also with, like within, the need to fact check, I also think we need to recognize that there are some things that are still very much in contention and entire bodies of academic thought have been dedicated and who have, you know, argued for centuries or decades over particular issues. Not, I'm not saying that this particular Anzac story is one of them, but I think we need to recognize the limits um, that, that fact checking will have uh, because there are some things that take 30, 40 years. To, to come to light. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's a complicated answer, but that doesn't mean that this should let newspapers off the hook for not doing a very basic job of ensuring that what they're publishing is accurate. And, and, and on quite a sensitive occasion as well. I mean, look, Anzac, we can't lie, um, is subject to a fair bit of mythology at times. Uh, I think that's probably one of the core kind of pieces of tension in, in why it is, is kind of a contentious moment every year when it comes around. Do you think that, I mean, maybe it's an obvious question, Sam, should Fairfax and our PM have been a bit more careful in, in getting involved in, in, in what could be termed perhaps mythologising? Yeah, well, I don't think they realised they were mythologising, given that they clearly thought it was true. Mm. But I think maybe, like, in this case, it seems like perhaps because it was written by a historian, maybe they like weren't as thorough with their fact-checking as they would otherwise have been. Maybe they kind of assumed that he knew what he was talking about based on the books and stuff that he's put out. And I think it's important to make sure you're fact-checking even reputable sources as well and even the kind of people who you think are the experts. Like some of the writing I've been doing recently has been about like urban myth and legend and all the experts in that give you different takes. Like even the people with the PhDs, there's so much disagreement there and you only find that out when you've asked a few of them. Mm. I think unfortunately really? sometimes just deadline pressures mean that this is the first sort of stuff to fall by the wayside. Mm. Um, like we suddenly don't have a dedicated fact checker. We make sure to try and fact check and sub edit our stories really well when we put them out, especially if they've involved research. But it's 
suddenly in our newsroom it's not a role that a person has. And I think in a lot of newsrooms that might be the case, but it, it could be. Well, I mean, like, I don't know in Australian history whether we have, we don't have um, Martin Luther King's. We don't have many big heroes to look at through our history. I hope I'm not offending anybody by saying that, but we just, I don't feel we do. And perhaps attributing so many of the, the, the parts of uh, Anzac that people find uh, heroism in, um, attributing that to Monash is, uh, is, is probably... It, it just happened a little bit too easily, a little bit too lazily. There's this weird um, phenomenon recently of people kind of going back and rewriting jo- John Monash's life and his values. Like the, the liberal backbenchers who kind of made the Sir John Monash Forum, which is like a pro-coal working group, um, and then his own descendants came out and said, you know, our grandfather or great-grandfather wouldn't have stood for this. Um, I, I get your point about how we mythologize Anzac Day. Um, you know, it, most people don't know pretty, like pretty basic things about Australian history. A lot of people think we won on Anzac Day. Uh, a lot of people don't know that, um, you know, when James Cook first landed, uh, he wasn't Captain Cook, he was Lieutenant Cook. Um, I didn't know that myself until, uh, an Aboriginal guy told me. Um, we have a pretty, uh, perfunctory understanding of our own history. You know, Simpson and his donkey weren't Australian, or well, I don't know what nationality the donkey was presumably <laughs> turkish um but simpson was british uh you know our, our own history is still kind of a mystery to us because often we um are pretty indifferent to it yeah absolutely and i think when you're talking about there not really being Martin luther kings in australia i don't think that's true i think there are so many like hero figures or people that could be made into hero figures for better or worse in Australian history who just kind of get overlooked because I suppose like media outlets and storytellers go to the easiest available person and they try to pile it all on someone like John Monash who they know about, who they've already got a bit of a legend around. I've certainly heard like even the one that comes to mind is even in this actual story um, in the battle that the retracted story was about the generals there arguably could have been defined as heroes. I don't know heaps about them, but the little bit that I read earlier today kind of showed that they had done some pretty impressive things, pushing for particular strategies that hadn't been considered beforehand and pushing to get the credit for those afterwards and ultimately winning battles, potentially saving lives there. But they get looked over and not even considered as an equivalent John Monash because we're so eager to leap onto that. Like another example is when I've done reporting on public housing in Sydney, people like Jack Mundy and the kind of union legends around Sydney have done stuff that you could compare to hero figures. Like they've made profound speeches. They've been at important rallies. They've won like really interesting battles on behalf of communities. And we just don't hear about those. Mm. Can I jump in? Absolutely. Please do. I completely agree with everything you just said. Um, The only thing I would, would add to that though, is that, Within the range of what is considered acceptable opinion, there seems to be an attempt to one-dimensionalize the Anzac myth, which is that war is good and anyone who says otherwise is bad. And like all wars, they are sometimes necessary, sometimes they're really messy. All the time, they are incredibly complex and there are a number of things going on at any given time. All of them which, which sit on some level on, on a spectrum of atrocious, heartbreaking, unnecessary to necessary, um, heroic, brave, all of these things. But anyone who 
tries to accurately address some of the more complex issues of war and, you know, in this particular example, Australia's involvement in the war, is, are professionally threatened. We've had, what, three journalists over the last five years have their jobs threatened or have lost their jobs because they said something about the Anzac myth and the Anzac spirit that was deemed socially unacceptable. And in at least one of those instances, it was at the behest of our now Prime Minister. And again, you know, this is coming down to who controls information. And particularly when we're at a time when um, our own social networks like Facebook and Twitter are now saying that they're considering employing journalists out of the AP and AAP to put news alerts on, on anything posted on Facebook that allows people to identify what is and is not Russian propaganda. Not all propaganda, just Russian propaganda. And just news which is considered to be uh, conspiratorial or um, not within the range of acceptable opinion. And, and as we've all been discussing right now, you know, things are really complex. And no one is right 100% of the time and no one is wrong 100% of the time. And when we are being told what we should and should not believe and should and should not be allowed to read at any given time, you know, I don't think any news organization or any single journalist will be able to individually accurately convey in 600 words or less the entire body of context, history, truth and knowledge of any given story. And if journalists, if people who read journalism and who are interested in the, in the news want to be informed, unfortunately, that responsibility should fall to them. And, you know, you have to read a lot of different things from a lot of different sources, some of which you will not agree with, in order to be as informed as humanly possible. And no amount of fact-checking and no amount of social media alerts will will fix that problem for us. But, it, you know, it does worry me that, that for those of us who are trying to look into uh, the myths and, and urban histories um, that have informed so much of our political understanding of the world... Um, threatened professionally simply for trying to do their jobs, you know, that really worries me. Because as far as I know, you know, this might have been an, an embarrassing retraction, but I don't think anyone's lost their job over it. Mm. And, you know, I think that really should say something about what we we will be prepared to tolerate within the media mm. and within the people who read it. I, I, I do think that perhaps uh, Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan King... Uh, will not be writing for Fairfax anymore. I'd have to check that out, but I, I think I, I did read that today. Um, but we'll have to leave that there. Uh, you're on Fourth Estate. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Tom Allenson, and I'm speaking to Alex McKinnon from the Saturday Paper, Sam Langford from Junkie, and joining us on the line is freelance reporter Claire Connolly. On the weekend, uh, News Corp's The Times in the UK published findings from a study claiming that opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn's election campaign could have been influenced by 6,500 Russian Twitter bots. But uh, closer to home, The Telegraph reported this week that Labor Senator Kimberly Kitching, a factional ally of Bill Shorten, has more than 7,000 Russians following her on Twitter. That's uh, more than a quarter of her followers. But most haven't tweeted anything in more than a year. Now, the the Telegraph used a service called Export Tweet to analyse her followers' language and found 27% spoke Russian as their first language. But 
Kitching has since posted an official Twitter analysis that says 97% of her followers spoke English. Alex, um, it gets a bit technical here. Do you, do you know, is this just a matter of what kind of analysis software is used to get such different results, or is one of them made up? I don't know necessarily what the right kind is. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. But I think that overall, these kind of reports are pretty rubbish. And I think reporting on things like Twitter bots and things like Russia and elections has been, in general, really poorly done. So in these cases, the kind of claims that are being made about Jeremy Corbyn's supposed Russian bot helpers and the ones that are working in Australia, in both of these cases... There are still a lot of questions about the methodology they used. I'm not quite sure what methodology they used in Australia. It may have been in the article, but I haven't seen that. In the UK, actual researchers are saying, well, hang on, like there are lots of different things that could have gone wrong here that get very technical and boring. But the upshot of it is no one at this point is totally sure that this data has been collected accurately. If it has been collected accurately, it also needs to be put in context. Like at the end of the day, 6,000 Russian-speaking bots tweeting have probably not convinced the British public to vote for Jeremy Corbyn, and he didn't win anyway. Like, I think that in that case, and certainly in Australia, like, even if 20% or something of her followers are Russian bots that have not tweeted, they're not persuading anyone, and they've got a pretty low capacity to persuade anyone. It's probably a situation, I know that in some cases people buy followers, or in some cases bots are drawn to accounts and just follow them en masse, but it's probably not the situation for alarm that's being made out to be. Claire, what do you think of that? I completely agree. And I'm so relieved to hear such a cogent um, and eloquently put um, opinion on this because it's not one you hear as often as you'd like to think. But, like, why are we even talking about this? We still have no evidence that Russia was responsible for anything. There are 10,000 NATO troops sitting on its borders. It was basically put under siege in Syria and has yet to respond. I mean, th this idea that Russia is responsible for all of the nation's ills is just like such a transparent attempt to try and divert attention from what the real problems were. Two and a half years ago, America voted for Donald Trump and half of Britain voted to leave the EU. And it was fairly aptly and confidently put at the time that it was because most of the general public are really sick of being left behind. And it seems as though for the last two years, there has been a very deliberate attempt, often by newspapers like The Times and The Daily Telegraph, to put a dampener on those claims and, and put it all at the, at the front door of Russia. Now, I'm under no illusion. Russia is not a, a democracy and Putin doesn't eat rainbows for breakfast. But it, you can't just put everything down to Russia. The West and... Australia and America and, and Britain, we have a dying middle class. We have African-Americans and Native Americans and Indigenous people in Australia and women and LGBTQIA who have for generations been systemically excluded from the economy. And now it's as though a, a greater portion of the population have now discovered that they're in the same situation that most of us have been familiar with for a really long time. And it seems as though every time we talk about Russian bots, it's an attempt to distract from the underlying issues that are affecting the massive political crisis we find ourselves in at this very moment. So, sure. like, who cares how many people are following Jeremy Corbyn on Twitter and how many of them are Russian bots? Because there are probably American bots and Australian bots 
and German bots and Greek bots too. You know, Russia isn't the only country that has a counterintelligence operation going. Mm. Alex, I mean, we, we do know that um, we, do, we have a good idea that false accounts are being used to distribute political messages from foreign countries in the US and the UK, um, here in Australia as well. Do you think that, that the Australian media are, are ready for this? I don't think we have seen yet a, a, an instance where there has been uh, a big social media impact on any of our uh, elections. Um, we've seen, I don't know, politicians using social media. Um, we haven't seen anything like a, a foreign power, uh, you know, using industrial-grade espionage on social media to try to influence the outcome of the election. Um, on the Jeremy Corbyn thing, uh, the tabloid newspapers in Britain come up with some new scandal every couple of months about Jeremy Corbyn, and then it turns out they just kind of made it up. There was one a few months ago uh, that basically accused him of being a traitor, of being like a, a traitor to the United Kingdom. And then everyone had to come out and say, oh, sorry, actually, we got that one wrong. So this kind of seems to be that sort of thing. In regards to Russian Twitter bots, the whole analysis about whether, you know, if 20% of someone's Twitter followers tweet in Russian, then how are they going to influence politics in a country where everyone speaks English? Exactly. Well, I think they are. Uh, the claims made were that uh, they are actually retweeting things in English, um, things that are uh, sympathetic to, in the Times case, um, Corbyn's campaign. Okay, well, in that case, Twitter, like, we vastly overestimate the impact of Twitter. Um, Reddit, uh, which is kind of popularly known for being a place where kind of men's rights activists and men who live in their basements hang out, um, just surpassed Twitter in terms of number of active users. Um, domestically, I doubt 99 people out of 100 would even know who Kimberly Kitching is. Most people aren't on Twitter. Most people don't care about any of this sort of stuff. Um, the British thing and the Australian thing just seem like beat-ups that aren't really worth anyone's time. Mm. Yeah, mm. I just think it's also about just using, you're not going to bit when stories like this come out. Like people see words like Russian and bots, and I think maybe because they don't understand either of those areas, anything goes. Like if you've reasonably told someone that the equivalent of a bunch of Twitter followers sharing the content, like a bunch of people you can't understand coming up to you on the street and giving you flyers, you disregard it. Like we put more weight if we even use Twitter on the people that we follow who we respect, who we actually follow because we think they're putting out views that we're interested in, who might link to actual articles about it. Like, there is scope for social media influence, absolutely, but I think we also need to bear in mind what a bot can actually make a person believe, and it's not going to be this giant catastrophic event that these articles kind of make it seem like it will be. I mean, it seems as though it's an attempt to regain credibility, though, because in as far as, I mean, over the last two weeks, you've had the Times publish two factually incorrect pieces, one which cited a Tory report about Russian bots, and it identified as its main characters four lead actors that it defined as Russian bots that were neither Russian nor bots. And then last weekend, it used the, the front page of its newspaper to attack a group of academics for launching a research group on Syria. So... You know, while they're publishing these, you know, articles claiming that Russian bots are having an outsized influence, they themselves are trying to have an outsized influence on their readers. And they wouldn't be trying to do it if they weren't 
feeling as though their credibility was under threat. Mm. And it's disappointing when you see these, you know, arbiters of the fourth estate basically siding with the powers that they're meant to be holding to account because they're concerned, I'm assuming because they're concerned for their bottom line, because none of that kind of reporting actually helps readers understand better the world around them. And that's essentially what journalism's role is to do, Mm. um, or at least part of journalism's role. Um, And and if they weren't so concerned about their legacy and, and their impact coming under threat, maybe they would be doing some more substantial reporting. But it seems like a waste of two pretty great front pages that could have been used for any number of issues, like the homelessness rate in the UK, if we're talking about the Times, or the fact that we have a dying middle class, basically across Australia, the United States and Britain, um, you know, house prices, poverty, the closing of domestic violence shelters. Um, you know, there are, there are any indigenous issues, indigenous incarceration and abuses of power and incarceration. Sure. There are any number of issues that we could be reporting on, and instead we're devoting time and energy to talking about Twitter bots. Twitter. And I think perhaps then we're all agreed that maybe Twitter doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> My tweet's pretty good. Never tweet. <laughs> so you're on Fourth Estate. I'm Tom Allenson. You're listening to Fourth Estate. And in the studio, we've got Alex McKinnon from the Saturday Paper, Sam Langford from Junkie, and on the line, we've got independent journo Claire Connolly. Uh, so every year, we get some pretty searing comedy from the White House Correspondents' Dinner Roast in the US. This year, the line between comedy and offence seemed to get a lot thinner, though. Michelle Wolf was the comedian hired for the roast, and her raw humour seemed to be going down fine until she got to the White House press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Let's hear a little bit of it. I actually really like Sarah. I think she's very resourceful. Like, she burns facts, and then she uses that ash to create a perfect smoky eye. <laughs> like, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's lies. It's probably lies. <laughs> So the backlash and arguments about that uh, started and lasted all week. Where do we start? I mean, was anybody offended by Michelle's roast? No. Like, she was very funny. I don't know why people are so worked up about this when the point of inviting a comedian to this dinner is for them to roast everyone in the room and insult people gently. Weirdly, people have tried to make this about um, her somehow insulting Sarah Huckabee Sanders' body image in some way when all she said was a comment about smoky eye and people just latched onto that as if like any comment on appearance is terrible these days mentioning someone burning the truth and making it into smoky eye is not body shaming someone it's shaming someone for burning the truth it's pretty clearly about her like political activity yeah it's uh, alex I, I think i have heard other commentary saying that that it was actually quite clearly intended as a compliment just on from, makeup skills just from general observation over the years the white house press corps seem like the most miserable humorless bunch of pricks second that uh in existence um i guess like to sam's point about inviting a comedian to roast you at an event and then getting mad when the comedian roasts you um it takes me back to 2006 when uh, the then Bush White House invited Stephen Colbert um, to MC uh, the correspondence dinner. Um, and George Bush was there. Um, Donald Trump is the first president in a long time not to show up to the event. Um, Coward. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he just had to sit there 
kind of visibly seething as Stephen Colbert roasted him and the entire room um, of very kind of self-important journalists about the complete, uh, the completely terrible job they did in, in reporting uh, in the lead-up to the Iraq War. Um, and he was the only person speaking sense in the entire room. And he got booed and people walked out and it was a controversy and all the rest of that crap, but he wasn't uh, delivering a message for them. He was delivering a message for people whose lives were impacted by those policies. Hmm. Claire, I, I, this, does this seem to you to be uh, a little bit more of a, an extended and, and perhaps more, uh, I don't know, a bigger outrage than, than perhaps we've seen before? I think it was fairly predictable. Um, it helps that she was female and young. Uh, I think it probably helps keep that fire burning a little longer than it would ordinarily have. But I think it's amazing that of all the insulting things that Wolf said that night, and accurately and rightly so, the only thing that both the White House and, and the United States Washington Press Corps had to cling to was you were mean about a woman because that's the only thing that they could come up with that they could reasonably put into a category of, of, well, this will make for a good social media shaming. Because she questioned the job that they've been doing, rightly. She questioned Trump's heinous ability. Um, There was nothing that she said that was in any way incorrect or inaccurate, and it was also hilarious. So body shaming Sarah Huckabee Sanders by a bunch of people who quite happily published headline after headline about various horrible things that their now president said about Hillary Clinton or had said about any journalist or any person who dared insult him. Like, for them to turn around now and say, oh, you're insulting Sarah Huckabee Sanders and that's where we draw the line? Like, that in itself demonstrates the complicity between the United States press corps and the government that they're meant to be holding to account. And I know I sound like the tired, boring political junkie lefty here but it's like there's just a reoccurring theme here which is what happens when you know power and media collude a little too closely you know we're talking about collusion on on a massive scale here at the moment about you know whether or not this election was hacked thrown influenced watered down um you know but we're not really examining the role that the press call have played in that and and michelle wolf stood up on stage and said i think you love trump you act like you hate him, but he's helping your bottom line. And and I'm wondering if, if there's like an influencing factor because she kind of called out the elephant in the room, but you can't then just address the elephant directly. So, well, they'll just take the identity politics and political correctness angle and all rally behind Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who regularly lies to the press and refuses to answer questions. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's just once again showing how, you know, weak, the United States press corps has become, and you know, I thank Michelle Wolf for taking that bullet for all of us. Yeah, and I think also the only people I've really seen complaining are people who were in the room or who were targeted, like politicians in the press corps. Like, I haven't really seen a good deal of outrage from just average viewers on this one. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally, it's media generated. Well, we might have to leave it there. Um, that's it from us on Fourth Estate. Uh, thank you to my guest, Sam Langford from Junkie, Alex McKinnon from the Saturday Paper and Independent Journo, Claire Connolly on the phone. Um, next week, the amazing Peter Frey will be back in the host seat uh, with years of industry experience and his usual charm. 
Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and where the two combine. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My name's Tom Allenson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.